The Healthcare Quality Cast is powered by the Quality Coaching Company. If you'd like to work with us to earn your Lean Six Sigma for healthcare certification or partner with our innovative corporate training and coaching programs to successfully scale your continuous improvement initiatives, then click the link below to learn more and apply. Hey, quality people, welcome to the Healthcare Quality Cast. I'm your host, Jarvis Gray, and in this podcast, we spotlight today's most exciting and inspiring industry leaders. We dive deep into the career journeys of these leaders that work daily to improve quality, safety, and service outcomes for their patients, their family members, and their communities at large. Our mission is to provide motivation and direction to our listeners, encouraging you all to continue your efforts in improving the overall quality of healthcare. Now, let's meet today's quality guests. All right, thank you for joining in on another episode of the Healthcare Quality Cast. And today I'm here with my guest, Mr. Paul Hoover Jr. Paul, are you ready to share with some quality people? Yeah, I am. Thanks, Jarvis. All right, wonderful. Um, Paul, we love to start every show with positive affirmations, really to get our momentum going. So I would love if you could please share a favorite leadership quote or leadership mindset, but tell us why it appeals to you and how do you apply it on a daily basis? Yeah, Jarvis, that's a good one. I think for me, the quote by John Maxwell, the hardest person to lead uh, is yourself. And it's that simple truth that reminds me of two things. One, that I am incredibly capable of anything that I set my mind to, but at the same point, I have to be willing to bend my mind and my will and my actions ultimately in order to achieving that. And many times, you know, we have this innate ability as humans to learn and to grow and to adapt and change, but our leadership really starts with our ability to influence ourselves and change ourselves. But ultimately that's what simply allows us to move forward and to be effective. Well, I, I love that. And I, I'll say just again, going from memory here, I want to say that might be the first official Maxwell quote on the podcast. Um, <laughs> I, I was fortunate in my career to um, jump in. I, I started my career outside of healthcare, and the leader that I worked for at that time put myself and some other team members through a John Maxwell training program at 23 years old. Um, literally changed my life. So um, I have a huge affinity for John Maxwell, but I love that quote also. It's very reflective um, and, and very um, introspective, I guess, as we start getting ourselves ready for better leadership. So yeah. great, great way to start our show. Thank you for that, Paul. Um, Paul, I'm going to move us to the second question. And would love for you to now share with our quality people, um, you know, a little bit about yourself. Would love to have you briefly describe your current role, your professional background, and definitely what led you into your career, uh, career path. Sure. So I currently serve as the uh, Senior Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer for Kettering Health Network. We're located in Southwest Ohio. We have nine hospitals, 14 EDs, and then just a host of uh, clinics and sites that are deeply embedded in the communities that we serve. My background is in uh, a double major in business administration and accounting. And so I kind of tell people I had a foot in both worlds and uh, got my MBA as well, but my career started out with a three-year leadership development program with another health system. And in that time period, I spent time transporting patients, uh, working in process improvement, uh, running clinics, uh, finance, accounting, analytics, all of those things. Uh, I got a little bit of everything over those three years. 
And ultimately, when I finished up that three-year program, I went and did finances for a employed physician group and slowly moved into operations and then slowly added uh, business development and strategy, uh, which is now what I get to do today. All right. Wonderful. Well, you know, Paul, I was just mentioning as we got on the line today that, um, you know, we had a chance to connect on LinkedIn. I saw your profile. I was so impressed. But the thing that stands out, funny enough, amongst many of the um, just impressive roles that you've covered is the fact that you have experience down in Florida. So I guess my question, are you originally a Florida guy or or just kind of in and out or? <laughs> no, I, my, my parents both grew up in, in Tampa, Florida, but for me, North Georgia was home or is, was home. We, we lived there for about uh, 15, 16 years. And, okay. uh, but my grew up as a minister's kid. And so we were kind of transient different communities, but Florida was always like, if I could just get to Florida and live there, that I would have achieved a level of uh, notoriety or something. I don't know. So worked there for a number of years and absolutely loved it but uh, got a call to come up here to Dayton, Ohio and uh, haven't looked back. I didn't grow up here or know anybody here, but just the opportunity in the community uh, was something that we couldn't pass up. Okay, fair enough. Well, like I said, when I saw some of those Florida uh, positions, I was like, hey, another Florida guy. Um, <laughs> so I, I would love, Paul, to, to kind of go off script. Um, I'm being good and giving you a heads up here. But um, my first real kind of off script question, um, I would love if you could probably share with us kind of a, a day in the life of a senior vice president, chief strategy officer. And I'm really intrigued with the strategy component of it. Um, could you share with us, you know, what is a day in the life, but what are some of those high functioning strategic things that you do on a daily basis? Sure. That's a great question, Jarvis. So, I, I have the unique responsibility of having a foot in two worlds. I have a foot directly in operations. And so I have a number of uh, service line areas, cardiovascular, orthopedics, um, uh, oncology and brain and spine are the four areas. And then I have some other ancillary operations at the hospital. So those are areas that I get to oversee from a day-to-day -day operational standpoint. And then I also spend time with uh, what you might call business new business development and then strategy and planning. So I kind of tell people in those three buckets. So day-to-day -day operations is pretty straightforward. You have guests and customers and you have clinical teams that are arranged around those and you're serving the needs. And so one of my roles is to ensure that my teams have the tools and resources to do their, to do their job. They're clear on the operational objecti objectives and metrics. And a lot of my time in that area is spent uh, clearing the path and helping folks do what they do best. So whether it's getting resources, um, getting organizational attention, those are things that we focus on. New business development is what I'll call the, the singles and the doubles, to use a sports analogy. It's what I call the day-to-day the -day hustle of helping make things easier, in this case, for our guests to access us. So identifying where we have uh, either gaps in coverage or service where we can better serve needs, identifying uh, needs of communities and helping to meet those um, uh, more effectively and ultimately where you're able to do good for people and do well financially while doing it. And then the third bucket is the strategy and planning. And that is simply taking a more uh, long range view and saying, where is the puck going or where do we need to be in the future relative to what we're doing? So the first two things, if you don't do anything else, those things are gonna continue to present themselves um, and you can continue to operationalize those. However, the train can be moving by. And if you're not focused with your head up to the future, you miss key opportunities. And so a lot of my job is to help articulate 
where we're going to where things are going in the future. And then secondly, then start to translate activities that then move our day to day actions in the direction that we need to go. All right. Perfect. And I'm curious also, Paul, how much of a lot of that, because you did mention, you know, looking towards the future, the things that are coming down the pipe, I'm sure. Um, how much of that would then maybe even encompass technology and um, especially given our environment today with COVID, how much of that is like looking for the, what's the landscape? Is it one year, three year, you know, 10 plus years? How, how's that part of innovation and future looking um, encompassed into your work? Yeah, it seems like the more and more uh, I work in healthcare, the shorter the, the time horizon is, it continues to be more and more volatile, uh, more and more dynamic, and there continues to be a pace of change that when I first entered 16 years ago, I didn't, I thought was fast. And now you think about the changes that happen, it, it just, it happens at a moment's notice. I mean, think about for a second, the current COVID crisis. Um, so January of this year, if you wanted the telemedicine visit, you likely had to pay out of pocket. Uh, very few insurances offered telemedicine visits. So really low-tech technology. So you and I are talking right now face-to-face -face over Zoom. But uh, for some reason, uh, the regulatory environment couldn't figure out a way to do that in healthcare. So you fast forward to the middle of March. All of a sudden, the federal government changes the rules and regs. Insurances follow suit. Um, and so the regulation landscape changed. And why did it change? Because the consumer's expectations and desires changed. And so a lot of times uh, preceding that, patients did not want to come. They wanted to come in and physically see somebody. But now because of the fear of COVID or just the general understanding or the overall convenience, uh, the landscape has changed dramatically. Many times the technology that we see is innovative and groundbreaking uh, when you think of iPods or iPhones, it existed uh, well before, but it took a cultural change or a cultural understanding or a cultural incorporation for it to uh, really take hold and to then change society as a whole. Well, and I, I hear also in there is cultural and the financial and with the regula uh, regulatory impact. Um, yeah. So perfect. Um, Great overview. I really appreciate it again. And and again, you know, Paul, just, uh, you know, from the world that I live in with quality and process improvement, Lean Six Sigma and, and, and all of the above, um, I coach a lot of leaders up on the fact that for my world, uh, when done well, at least operations improvement, process improvement is really the execution of strategy. So that was, again, another draw when I came across your profile and connected with you. Um, you know, those two worlds, I think a lot of times I've seen them try, you know, folks will try to keep them separated and you get, you know, professionals like myself are just doing projects for the sake of using our skills. Mm -hmm. And I'm just a huge advocate that they have to be connected if you really want to take your, um, you know, your organization from a place where they are to a place they've never been. Mm -hmm. To me, that's real improvement and that's real strategy is going somewhere you've never been before. Mm -hmm. And so that's that was, again, just everything I found in your profile, sir, that, you know, just had me like, I got to reach out at some point um, and see if, you know, you'd be willing. So I appreciate the time again for everything that we're going to talk about today. Um, Paul, let me move to the next question. And this is the question that I call our dark place question. So I would love for you to take us back on a journey to a point in your healthcare leadership career that you would consider your best moment of failure. Um, I'd love for you to share with us what that moment was. Uh, tell us the story, but most definitely share with us the major lessons learned that you took from that moment. 
Yeah. So this was one that I really had to think about, Jarvis, because I traditionally have not been a person who's focused on failures. I simply just incorporate those into moments of learning. And But this is one that I think for me has stood out, uh, one, because it was early on in my career. And secondly, um, uh, it came up again in, in a different career path, but it I was able to approach it differently uh, with a much different outcome. So I, like I told you, I was going through a three-year leadership de development program. I had just come out of process improvement. So I was just, I just spent time working on bed turnaround time and standard deviation and all that kind of stuff. So I had all these tools rattle around in my little toolbox and I go to my next rotation, which was a patient financial services or rev cycle. So I specifically was spending time in the front of house. So if you call up for an appointment, they say, well, Jarvis, we're going to get your authorization and call your insurance and collect your copay and the other stuff. So I'm spending time with this team and I noticed that there's this one team of like, I think it was like 15 or 20 people and their whole job was to rework claims. And I'm thinking, well, this is like waste out the door. You know, if we could just figure out how to not have this waste. So I talked to my supervisor and I said, hey, I'd like to spend some time and figure out if we could improve the claims coming in and make things better. So she goes, terrific. So I go off and after three months, I figure out that, yeah, there's a waste. And I figured out that we could probably cut half of it out uh, through just changing the upstream processes that another team was responsible for. So I, I sit down and do the presentation and I'm thinking I have really arrived because I this was like a half a million dollars, three quarters of a million dollars. It was a big number amount uh, that I uh, identified that we could save. And ultimately nothing happened. And I, and I just was like so frustrated because I'm like, this is the right thing. I've, I've done all the analytics. The data's right. I'm solid. You know, the, the teams are bought in. But the supervisor just wasn't, it just kind of just sat there and died on the vine. And ultimately, I rotated to another area. So fast forward two years later, um, I get a call from this leader. And she says, hey, I, I need that analysis that you did um, we're going through budgets and I've got to find some money to do improvements. And, you know, could you send me that analysis again? And I said, sure. And so I uh, sent it to her and was walking her through the analysis. But what it highlighted for me, Jarvis, was the need for timing. Um, what I didn't recognize was what I was suggesting to her had, was really challenging, I think, in many ways to her role in that job as a leader, um, to whatever obligations she felt to her team. Because ultimately, I was saying we needed half the amount of people to do the job that she was currently doing. And so imagine having to go in and decide half the staff that gets to stay. That's, that stinks. That's a, that's a rotten job as a leader. And then imagine if half of what you do or have done suddenly goes away. That has to be pretty challenging. And so for me, it was kind of two things. The reminder of um, I didn't fully articulate or anticipate how this was going to impact this leader. Um, specifically and challenge her um, and her need for self-worth. And then secondly, at that point in time, the, the organization that, that I was working at was doing well financially. Two years later, they were having some challenges. And so, you know, they were willing to be a bit more aggressive in that respect to, um, to work on that. So timing, so timing, and then just understanding the other individual and how this could be perceived and how this could challenge or threaten their world. All right. Wonderful. So, Paula, I'm sitting here taking notes and a, a couple of things I pulled out of your story. Um, and I appreciate that. That was in interesting. Um, I can say personally, I've had similar projects where I do all the work, 
you know, map out the processes, mm -hmm. do the analyses, come up with some quick recommendations to pitch. And they all, like you said, they, they die on the vine and you sit there like, you know, you almost like your question, like, am I not good enough? What happened? Yeah. I, I thought I had this together. <laughs> um, so I love your point. You know, your takeaway, it's all about timing. And I, I've learned in my career path that, you know, sometimes half of this job is just, you know, planting the seeds and then letting them grow over time mm -hmm. until it's time to reap. And that's, you know, sounds like what you did there um, with yeah. that leader coming back two years later mm -hmm. and asking for the uh, the analysis you did. Um, what I also picked out of it was the fact that quality people, we just don't throw stuff away. So the fact that you could dig, <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you had a project to send back to her, um, I literally have a disk drive with all of my best projects, probably for the last 13 plus years. So it's, it's the huge archive. If I ever lost it, I would be heartbroken. Um, but I love that. Um, you know, one of the things I wrote down, though, kind of turning it around to the other side of it. It's really interesting, um, Paul, had they taken you up on some of your recommendations two years earlier when you were doing the work, could that have been some of those things that would have created more opportunities so that at that two-year mark, two years later, would they have had the same challenges? I don't, you know, it's, it's the what if kind of a question, yeah. but that's kind of that systems thinking approach where, you know, at the time that we lead all these different improvement um, possibilities, if we act now versus later, it, I mean, it could be game changers um, to some degree or could save jobs at later mm -hmm. dates. So, you know, for at least for our listeners who um, may run into similar situations like what you had there, Paul, I think it's, that's our responsibility. Like we have to keep doing the analyses and pitching the ideas, even if they don't sell on mm -hmm. the first attempt, because, you know, really what the work we're doing, they could they could shift the organization so many ways. And if we're successful, mm -hmm. hopefully we we can prevent, you know, the two years later situation where the, the teams have to be aggressive and who knows what kind of decisions are being made at that point. So uh, yeah. I just wanted to call those things out, but I love that story. <laughs> so. Next question I have for you, Paul, um, to get us up out of the dark place. Um, would love if you could give our quality people a tip, tool, or tactic that you found works really well for building intimate connections on the project teams that you lead. Um, share with us again, you know, what is it and how do you apply it? Yeah. So, you know, one may sound really simple, but keeping the guests the center of whatever we're doing, I, that's something I really try to do. And the way I do that is by uh, I call it catching stories and then sharing stories. And uh, those stories either describe uh, the current state of what things are like and describing it in a very tangible and real way. And then secondly, spending time to tell stories and engaging people's ability to dream through, uh, through, through storytelling about what things could be. So that is something that um, I really have found to be very effective everyone loves a good story. And uh, the more effective I can be at either catching the story, and then secondly, sharing it in a way that is compelling, a lot of times is half the battle in some of these challenges uh, or these problems that we are ultimately confronted with. Uh, it's getting people to care and capturing their, their, uh, their hearts, not just their minds. So... All right. So, uh, you know, I, I love that for a few reasons. And I, I'll say, you know, with my background as an engineer, Paul, mm -hmm. um, the thing, obviously, you know, I, I'm stereotyping and I'm admitting that this was my come up when I, you know, was going through my programs. 
they train us on processes and data. They don't teach us how to sell, first and foremost, but they don't teach us how to tell stories a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think what you just shared is very important for a lot of us doing the analytical work and the process-driven work, if we could figure out how to add stories. Uh, I mean, I love the way you put it, catching stories and sharing stories, but the power of storytelling yeah. um, goes a long way with business. Um, any any pointers or any insights that you can give? Um, was that kind of a learned skill or is that a natural, are you like a natural storyteller or what What can we do to maybe kind of pick up on that that skill a little bit more from your from your point of view? I, I, a friend of mine, uh, Dick Dirksen, uh, he kind of captured the notion of catching stories and telling stories. And and I remember uh, early on in my career, I had, I had moved into a role uh, from finance, uh, which was is obviously very analytical. And there's not a whole lot of, it's like figures don't lie, but liars do figure. So it's pretty black and white many times with uh, accounting. So I just transi- transitioned over to uh, operations and oncology. So I was running uh, chemotherapy and uh, radiation and surgical oncology, a cancer center. And in my quest for data, so I'm, I'm a data geek and I'm a, a finance guy. And so I'm looking for data and uh, I'm focused in on one of our top uh, tumor sites, breast cancer. And I found out, uh, got started collecting data and I found that um, at, our, at our hospital, the average time from screening mammogram to definitive surgery was about 41 days. And then I found data where the national average, I think at the time was like 42 or 43 days. So at first I'm like, you know, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm running a real tight ship here, you know, here, the nation, you know, I'm, I'm doing as good as the nation. But then I asked myself, well, who's doing it the best. And that's when, um, it kind of, you know, the standard deviation, you know, we had a lot of variability. And when I found that the best was seven days, so then I'm like, well, that's a huge delta. 41 to seven days is a huge delta. And it just seems like I just had obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. I had private practice physicians, radiologists, imaging centers, all of which were outside of my direct influence. So I could fix the stuff in-house, but I couldn't fix all the other stuff. And healthcare, as you know, it just it can feel very siloed and fragmented. And so I had all these fragmented pieces. So I got everybody in the room together and I said, I want you to imagine with me for a second that you or your loved one uh, has just gone in and had some sort of test or procedure. And the radiologist or the technician comes in and says, it's not good. We're going to have to do more stuff um, and we'll call you back tomorrow with the next step. And I said, imagine you're waiting for the call and it takes actually two days to get a call. And then they say, well, we're going to schedule you seven days from now. And then you get your schedule and then, yeah, that, that is cancer. And so we're going to need to do some additional tests in order to get things done. Another seven days goes by and another seven days and another seven days before you actually have the tumor that all this time is in your mind growing inside of you taken out. I said, that's 41 sleepless nights that we are uh, uh, subjecting our community to, and it's not acceptable. And I said, no more, no more will we have sleepless nights. We will not be the barrier for folks receiving care. Now I'm saying all this, I have no idea how I'm gonna do this. So I'm just, I'm like laying the gauntlet down. I'm like, no more, we are gonna be the ambassadors. We are gonna be the people, the navigators. We're gonna make things that are complex, simple. And we're gonna make things that are scary, we're going to help people feel safe. 
And within the span of about seven months, Jarvis, we were able to move from 41 days to seven days. So we were no longer the limiting factor in folks receiving care. Now it required a host of process changes, a, hope, a host of rapid improvement events. We rapid cycle, we would improve and then do rapid cycle improvements when something didn't work quite the way, but we, we built it on the fly. And ultimately we were able to change uh, the course of how people in that community accessed uh, cancer. And I, I found in that, in that instance that telling the story and talking about the sleepless nights, I didn't have to talk about a specific individual because each person could relate or they had a loved one who had been impacted by cancer. And what was good was we were able then to apply that or parlay that to other tumor sites and start to work on prostate and colorectal and other, uh, other tumor sites that a lot of times followed a similar path, uh, but yet were ill-defined and were fragmented. So um, it, it just, for me, capturing people's emotions uh, in a way, and then also I, I found myself feeling out on a, out on a limb when I kind of said, no more seven days, we're going to do it. I had no idea how to do this. And I'm a young leader. I'm thinking, boy, if I screw this up, you know, I'm going to, uh, but people bought in and they owned it and they, they, they compensated for my lack of immaturity or lack of experience, um, in a way that, uh, I, I am forever grateful for. No, uh, I love that extra example there, Paul. It, it definitely, um, you know, it sounds like you, you clearly succeeded with the storytelling, you tugged on that emotional piece, but even when you said, you know, no more to me, the, the way it resonated to me, as you just told the story was like, I'm putting all my chips on the table. Like this is, th this is the full ante up right here. And to, you know, to your success, you know, the team got behind you. Um, so that's part storytelling. Honestly, that's just leadership, man. So good, good, good job. Good effort. Great story. I love it. Thanks. So uh, next question I have for you, Paul. I would love if you could share with us one of the best aha moments that you've had as a healthcare leader. Um, but again, you know, walk us through the story, share with us how did the idea strike you, but most importantly, if you were able to turn it into a personal or a professional success. Oh man, there's this, this is one that, um, give me a second, Jarvis. Um, <laughs> I, I think for me, um, I think different, different people view things from different perspectives. And I remember, um, I'm working, my, my uh, boss at the organization that I'm at had come to me and he said, hey, we need to add an additional, or one of the physicians came to them and said, we need to add another provider to, um, to our group. And so asking me to kind of figure out, should we do it and what should it look like? And I remember um, I talked to the service line leader at the time and this individual had said, yeah, this, this makes tons of money. And uh, I said, boy, well, this is an area that traditionally has not been uh, cash flush. Uh, it's kind of, you're kind of break even and you do it as a service because you need to, not because it's a high, uh, high growth or high revenue area, but I kind of take their word at it and I start digging in to the, to the data. And I found that um, as I talked to different members of the team, um, they're like, yeah, we make money. So it, this was with women and children's. And so I'm talking with the OB leader and she's like, yeah, our, our docs make all of this contribution margin. And then I talked to the NICU leader and they're like, yeah, our NICU makes tons of margin and our surgery makes tons of margin. So all this time, I got like seven or eight areas that all make inordinate amounts of money. And I just, I kind of just had to stop for a second. And I said, time out. And I, I had several folks in the room. I said, let's just add this up for a second. And lo and behold, we added up all the margin 
and it was like more than the organization had made in a given or this hospital had made in a given year. And I said, clearly this dog ain't hunting. So this dog don't hunt. Um, that's my Southern coming out there. And um, <laughs> I, I just remember saying, what are we talking about here? And when we kind of pulled back for, for a second, I realized that everybody was counting the same bucket of dollars just a little bit differently. And so in this case, it was well-intentioned, but it, it just brought home the importance of me of getting to the core data and to the core issue, not the, the different perspectives that they brought to the table. So in that case, you know, there was one pot of dollars and yeah, it was, it was semi-profitable, but it was not seven times, it, it, was, it was not seven X, which was what was originally being represented. Once we got to the core set of truth on the data, then we were able to then craft a solution to meet the needs that were clearly there but to do it in a way that was uh, sustainable and that also was realistic looking to the future. And so for me, that just reminds me that while we each have different perspectives, there is a, tr a common truth and many times data helps parse that out. Um, so one of the things I kind of jokingly tell my team is in God, we trust all others bring data. So they, they kind of now know uh, and they laugh about that. But that was an aha moment where just, you know, everyone's counting the same same bucket of dollars a little bit differently. And, um, and yet it was, it was radically different when you looked, when you pulled up and looked at it from a more macro perspective. All right. So, you know, I, I love that quote. First of all, that's a classic quote. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, the uh, other quote, you know, this dog don't hunt. First time hearing that one. I, I, might, have to, <laughs> I might have to use that, but um, no, a great, another great story, you know, and the, the power that I got behind that is one, just you guys are having a business conversation. And again, even in the world I live in with process improvement, I always connect it back to business operations, strategy execution. And that's not always the favorite conversation in healthcare, just because of the environment that we're in. Mm -hmm. um, so I love you guys. Uh, I love that you all were having a business conversation the focus on data was the big takeaway. Um, I'm working with the team here in Atlanta right now, coaching them through some patient um, throughput work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everything that we've been pulling together so far has been so descriptive, so subjective. And I literally just sent an email off this morning, data, like I need objective facts. I need, yeah. you know, so, um, so that's been my challenge and my experience really in a lot of different healthcare settings I've been in. Um, let me ask how do you have a, a perception, I guess, around how tough it's how tough it can be to have business and data driven conversations? I know, uh, again, just, you know, learning from you now and seeing your profile, a lot of your work has been business development type of work in healthcare. But just a, as a culture of healthcare, is that an easy conversation or is there some warming up and some culture shifting that you have to do to even get them to that point to have those conversations? I, I find that sometimes, um, so no, I think it's, it's pretty easy. A lot of folks don't know where to get it. And so part of my job is just to get the right folks at the table. So to bring our analysts or process improvement teams or our um, uh, EHR uh, folks who know where the data is at, how it's stored, how it's aggregated and how to access it um, is really half the challenge. Um, so part of times when, when we have a challenge or opportunity, it's just simply just listening to people and saying, what are we really trying to accomplish? They'll say, well, we need to build a new clinic. It's like, no, no, no. What are we trying to accomplish? Mm -hmm. Or we need to hire another doctor. What, why, what, what are we trying to accomplish? And so when you pull back for a second, then you're able then to start to create a roadmap of the points of uh, question or points of uh, 
uh, kind of help lead down that path in a way. I, I do find though that with our teams, specifically with our process improvement teams, um, sometimes it's like sometimes not making a decision. Sometimes there's not a good decision, and so that's that's sometimes or it's a it's a it's a gamble. There's a there's there's an element of risk, and so sometimes it's hard to quantify specific opportunities, but you're like, it feels right. Well, how do you measure feels right? And I still think there's a place for that gut feeling, that intuition, the ability to read the market in a way that you sometimes can't clearly quantify. But I think the background of that should be backed up in data. Uh, And then most importantly, as you move forward, you have a roadmap to then articulate whether or not your hunch or the, the bet that you're making uh, or the plan that you're making is succeeding or failing. Cause sometimes we'll just keep doing stuff. And it's like, well, why are we doing this? Well, we started this 10 years ago and it's like, well, why? And you're like, well, well, why are we doing this? It's like, it's like, imagine if your spouse uh, were, were honest enough and said, this is how you can show me that you love me. And so imagine that they're that clear and, and, you know, you just, you do those things. And imagine after five years, your spouse no longer wants their feet rubbed or, they no longer want Italian, they want Mexican. And you're always making Italian on your anniversary. Well, it's like, what a waste of energy if you've kind of either missed the mark or things have drifted away or things have just changed. It doesn't mean that you don't love that individual or that the compassion's not there, but you're wasting or expending energy and effort not getting the same result that you may have get, gotten five years ago. And so the, you, we have to focus that it's not just the action or the activity that is what we're trying to be about. It's about that core. Uh, it's about the core thing that we're after. So serving a customer, um, et cetera. So it's just, sometimes we just do things just to do them and trying to get back to, well, why are we doing them? And to get back to the core, the root of why we started doing what we're doing in, a, in the first place is really important. And to your point there, that was even with the um, the project that I'm supporting right now. The key question, what are we trying to achieve with this, um, was the question. And the, the comments were, well, the process, is, the process is not effective. By whose standards? What yeah. are we measuring that against? But um, yeah, very, very strong point you have there, Paul. Um, understanding the why was driving us. And I liked how you even slipped a great story to take me someplace. Imagine if your spouse said, right? Mm-hmm. So um, you got the, the storytelling down, my friend. Uh, <laughs> oh, good. Next question I have for you, Paul. Uh, what are some of the changes taking place across the healthcare industry that you're excited about right now? And what role do you see quality professionals? And if it's okay, I'll even throw in strategy professionals yeah. um, to promote or to support its longevity. Oh, man, this this is a good one. Um, so there are really three things that in healthcare, th- this nation is really focusing on, and it's lower cost, better quality, and better experience. So I'll kind of take you to a dark place for a second, Jarvis. The third leading cause of death, this was all before COVID, so this, this could have changed, but was through medical errors. This is through a, a study that was done at Johns Hopkins. So third leading cause of death in the US, preventable death was medi- is medical errors. The second is we spend more than, thir- than 35 developed, than, um, more in healthcare than any other country in the world, yet we rank 26th out of 35 nations of developed nations in life expectancy. So we're spending more and we're getting less for our dollar. And then the last one that is really a bit, really depressing. You just want to grab your hair and run screaming from the room. Uh, uh, according to Gallup, only 20% of healthcare customers are satisfied. 79% are dissatisfied. So we're 
killing more people in healthcare. We're spending a bunch of money and we're not living any longer. And then thirdly, people are just exceedingly frustrated. So on the surface, that sounds like a pretty dark and dismal place to live. Um, the good news is there's nowhere to go but up. So that, that's the good news uh, for us. So it's not as if we've already achieved uh, the Six Sigma. It's not as if we've already achieved a level of efficiency that is uh, Toyota-esque in its manufacturing quality. So we've got nowhere to go but up. But I think the challenge here is, is the ability to be comfortable with disrupting ourselves. Um, so Reed Hastings, when he was doing the mail order DVD business, he kind of he went to his team and he said, "Hey, I've got this idea. We're gonna we're gonna um, we're gonna disrupt ourselves and we're gonna do this online streaming service." Now they screwed up with the marketing. Clearly, if you've ever read the Harvard Business Review, they they botched the name. They should have just kept it, which they ultimately did, kept it the name of Netflix. But what Reed Hastings really focused on, he said, "What the customers really after is a story being told in visual medium." Now, what Reed was focused on was disrupting the distribution system. So at the time, you and I had to get in our car, drive down to Blockbuster, which for those of you who don't know, is this place that rented these things called discs or VHS cassettes. And you would go home and you'd keep them for two to three days and you'd watch a movie with your friends and family. And then you'd have to go drive back and return it. So that's how it worked today. As, as you all know, two clicks and you know, you've got uh, Blacklist or uh, NCIS or whatever it is, your favorite show is, uh, streaming your television or tablet. But what Reed Hastings really was good at or is good at was understanding it was not about the distribution method. That was simply a means to accomplish what he, what he wanted to do was to provide a story being told in visual media. So how, what does this apply to healthcare? So in many times we say, well, our market share, if we could just get two more points of market share, if we could just get another 5% of margin, and we somehow focus on the hip or the knee or the surgery or the admission or the ER visit. And I think we lose sight of what uh, we are called. We are called to be uh, integral partners in the health of our communities. Now, clearly, people need surgery, and we need competent expert professionals to do it in a patient-centric and a holistic manner. But our goal is not to do surgery. Our goal is to restore health to the best of our ability. And one of the things that I think is really neat is the changes that are happening in the healthcare system. Now, on the surface, it's, it's uh, more work for less money. Uh, that's, that's no matter what, whether you're Democrat or Republican, both parties are clear on one thing. We are paid too much in healthcare. But the good thing is it's providing and it's opening up avenues for us to disrupt ourselves. So one of the things, uh, one of the ways that we've done that is uh, just here in Ohio is we had our um, health carriers and the community clearly had a need for emergency services. So our volumes were rising year over year. In the midst of that, we said, well, why is it rising? Well, we found that our access to primary care was taking too long. And so people were using the emergency department for just routine things, non-emergent stuff that you could have gotten done elsewhere. And so we set out to disrupt ourselves. We put in a series of walk-in clinics. Now on the surface, you'd say, well, why would you go from getting paid $5,000 to 180 bucks? And it's like on the surface, that makes no sense. But the reality is that if our goal was just about margin, 
then yeah, that doesn't make sense. But our goal was to be and is to be an integral part of meeting the healthcare needs and the, the care needs of our community. And so we set out to expand access to make it easier, more convenient, uh, more patient-centric, less costly, all of the things that we're after. Now, we don't have this figured out, but what is fun is reimagining and reinventing and disrupting ourselves in a way that uh, leads to better value um, and better outcomes. And that's the stuff that I get really excited about um, when working with our service lines. I'm like, how can we just reimagine uh, this in a way that's distinctly different and that people want to be a part of. And just today we had somebody from outside our community saying, we want you to come in and do what you're doing in your community to our community. And it's like, what better validation can you have than, than people seeking you out? So on the surface, lower cost, better quality and better experience, but that disruption uh, is really accelerating at a pace that I see is going to fundamentally change the way that healthcare is delivered. And it's exciting to be a part of that. All right. Wonderful. And Paul, let me ask, are you familiar with uh, Malcolm Baldrige, the, the Baldrige Award? Yeah. Yeah. The, an organization I worked with in Florida, we were the Sterling recipient. Um, nice. And so started on that Baldrige journey. And um, yeah, very familiar. Uh, okay. Because, you know, I, I know a huge take home and the message you just shared there was all around disrupting yourselves and, you know, to achieve the goals for better cost, quality and experience. But the way you laid it out, you know, made me reflect on the Malcolm Baldrige program, which, um, you know, a huge part of it is focused around the mission, vision and value. So Baldrige, you know, play, pays a lot of attention to the organizations that are living their mission, vision and value. And uh, when I um, served as an examiner last year, the organization I had a chance to review talked about the fact that in a lot of the in all of their executive meetings, all of their strategy meetings and so forth, they always started the conversations with the mission, vision and value. So every decision they're making comes back. And that's what I heard in your story is as long as we stay focused on our mission, vision and values, what are we here for? We're here to provide access to the community and so forth. You're always going to make some good decisions, even if they're not, you know, probably on the front end, at least not the best, quote unquote, business decisions, or it may challenge some of the business logic. You're staying true to your mission, vision and value, and you will find success by pushing that further into the communities. So that that's as you shared that story, that's kind of what I reflected on was, you know, success through your mission, vision, and value to, to have the impact that we want. Yeah, you're so. absolutely right. The, that, that focus is so critical and um, it's, it's fun and it's refreshing and it's, it's encompassing if done correctly in a way that brings other people in and inspires a level of creativity that many times uh, I don't think uh, we, we always get to explore, but it's fun when you do. All right. Wonderful. Love it. And next question I have for you, Paul, is how can the healthcare industry become a more attractive place for ambitious, talented, quality professionals, and again, even strategy professionals, just to, to pull them in, um, to start and or grow their careers? I, that's a good question. One of the things that I enjoy, I get to do is I work with our summer interns and also what we call administrative fellows, folks who are coming in in some sort of uh, training capacity. I specifically work with those who are business development, which is simply just a hybrid between operations and uh, in the finance arena. And I, that's one question that I've really been thinking about. And 
one of the ways I've been trying to do that is to break down the traditional hierarchical structure that exists in a lot of uh, corporate cultures. So healthcare in many respects uh, is very um, hierarchical. It's uh, very top down and there's, that's neither good nor bad. It just, it has uh, implications. But as folks come in, um, uh, providing a space and environment where they can learn. So one way that I've done that is I've created teams that are not, so traditionally, if, if let's assume that I have an individual who reports to me and there's an issue or problem that my boss comes to me with, and I'll find the appropriate person and say, hey, go, go figure this out. And they'll then go work on it, come back with a solution. We'll go back and forth a few times, and then ultimately we'll present it as a team um, to, to wherever it needs to go. Well, that's very hierarchical. And you think about when you and I started uh, in healthcare or in our respective careers early on, we didn't want to do data analytics. I mean, that was just, that was kind of the job or we didn't, you know, a process engineer or whatever the specific role was. I mean, yeah, we enjoyed it, but we wanted it to be about something bigger. And so what I've done is I pulled together these teams that I've kind of taken the org chart and made it flat. And so I've got VPs all the way down to frontline staff and, um, and we'll have six to eight to 10 people on a team and we'll have a specific problem or challenge. Now, these are not standing teams. They'll get pulled together for a specific problem or challenge, and then they'll get disbanded. And what's been fun is you've got a person who's brand new to his or her career working around the table with equal footing as another VP in the organization or a director or executive director. And um, the, the, what I found is those folks who have been on those teams, they absolutely love it because they're able to learn firsthand from the VP. So you kind of break through all these silos and you just shake it up and you, you put everyone together and then you say, all right, everyone's equal. Well, well, clearly the new kid in town knows that they don't know everything. And the VP knows they may have seen this a hundred times before, but when, when done correctly, you get to expose people to different perspectives, ideas, you're able to, um, help translate not just a specific problem, but to get to the cultural why or get to the mission or the vision or the values and do it in a way that uh, I have found empowering. And, you know, whereas before people traditionally don't want to take on extra work, people want to be on these teams. And it's pretty neat when you're able to kind of sit back and see them play out. You've got this brand new person working with somebody who's probably three or four years away from retirement. And this older individual is able to pour of themselves into this new leader. Um, and this, this new leader, this new individual is able to get mentored, developed and grown without the formal, you know, can I meet with you for 30 minutes over lunch? Or can we grab coffee sometime? Or can I talk with you about your experiences and all that stuff's great. But what you're ultimately doing is allowing them to form relationships uh, that traditionally wouldn't wouldn't occur, and to allow them to see things that um, both sides that they traditionally wouldn't be uh, that they traditionally wouldn't have experience with. So that's that's one way that I have found more engagement um, with our team, specifically those who are new. And that's that's what I would have wanted. And when I got that, I just relished it. So the times that I get to kind of shake it up and uh, mix it up is a lot of fun. Well, I'll share with you, Paul. So I mentioned that I had a life before healthcare. And I worked in electric utilities for a consulting company. It was a small group, maybe 30-ish people on, in our team in total. And the way that our office was set up, and again, this was the leader who put me and a bunch of young engineers through John Maxwell level training right at, you know, at a young stage in our career. Um, 
instead of having his big regal office, you know, he actually sat out in the cubicles with us and my cubicle was right next to his. And we were having a, our, our evaluation one year. And he asked me like, you know, what do you want to do with your career? And I was just like, I want to be you, you know, that was, that was my goal, my ambition at that time, at least. And he was like, okay. And so literally, because I sat right next to him, um, one part was that when I got stuck on projects, he would easily just like look across and we'd talk it out and he'd help me problem solve, but he would actually give me small bits and pieces of his work. You know, the regional director, basically the VP of our team and allow me the chance to like problem solve on the stuff he was working through. And again, just changed my entire career path. But, um, you know, the growth that I experienced in the two years, more or less, that I worked with him and the team there, more than I could have ever asked for in my personal career. So the fact that you all are doing that and you've established that, um, I, I'd love to maybe hear the feedback from some of the young folks that are working sure. in that, because I remember what it did to me in my early 20s. Mm -hmm. And I hope that they're having that same experience. So kudos to you for that vision. That's that's huge. Yeah, it's it's, it's fun to. I find more and more, I, I'm not old, but I am getting older, <laughs> but I, I just find that more and more, uh, I find my time about teaching and mentoring um, in a way that is exceedingly rewarding and fulfilling. And it's a lot of fun to be able to to impart that. And also the, the thing that I have, I found that's fun is challenging our new leaders. I've, I've got a, a leader that we recently promoted. And I was talking with him about the importance of developing others. Because up until this point, this individual has done his work. It's his analysis. He's worked hard. He's hustled. He's done the work. He's identified the problem. And I was talking with, the, with him just last week. And I said, you know, it's about others. And you're, you need to start to multiply the teams that are able to do the work that you're now doing. And you need to help coach and mentor and corral and... Um, and uh, just encouraging this this leader to then do that and then to see it start to manifest as they're mentoring others is a lot of fun. Well, and, you know, that's the mark, again, of a great coach or a great leader um, is that they produce other leaders. And uh, it, it takes me back. I, I said coach because I was thinking um, Bill Walsh, right, the, the San Francisco 49ers coach, that if you look at the lineage of coaches produced under him that were all very, very successful. Um, that's the mindset when I hear the comment and, you know, the, the story that you just described. Um, and again, it's a part of what makes a good leader, you know, kind of the good to great divide is leaders produce other leaders. Um, they don't hold back, they empower. So, um, again, again, just kudos, man. I I'm excited to hear stuff like that. That's, that's a great vision for the future. Yeah. Um, Paul, I'm going to move us now into the next part of our, our conversation here, uh, a segment of the show I call the two minute drill, okay. kind of my take on rapid fire Q&A. So just want to see if you are ready to rock and roll um, for the next couple of minutes here. Let's do it. All right. Perfect. Well, Paul, the next question I have for you is something of a two parter where I would love for you to tell, to tell our quality people something about your current role that inspires you to do your best and then also share with us how do you inspire others within your organization? Yeah, uh, I love that I get the ability to have one foot in the present and one foot in the future and to pull together teams to help build processes and plans that move us in a direction that's distinctly different. And that's the thing that I love. I love when I get to interact with patients and hear their story, but more importantly, hear about how we either are changing 
their lives for the better or how we could uh, how we could do a better job and then to to not dwell on that because it's good to celebrate and it's good to to reflect but then ultimately then to move uh move forward and to start to build a bridge from the present to the future that is different than than what exists than what would exist if just nothing happened and that's the thing that i just i absolutely love is when we get to do that because that's when you see your mark or your legacy, because nobody wants to just manage stuff and stop the fires from going and keep the plate spinning. People want to have a lasting impact. And for me, that's what I love. All right. Wonderful. And Paul, what is the best piece of career advice that you've ever received? So a gentleman that I worked with, he was a CEO of a hospital. His name's Ken Madison. And um, he was known for what he called the upside down org chart. And on the back of his business card, he had uh, himself at the bottom and he had the guest at the top and in between the respective layers. So we were traditionally think president, vice president, executive director, director, and you know, and then you work through the different classes or um, of different positions. But Ken really modeled the importance of putting others first. And so I remember once, uh, Ken, I forget how I was talking about, I was working on something and I mentioned about my car being dirty or something like that. And Ken goes, well, come over to my house Friday afternoon and, and we'll, we'll wash your car. I mean, here is the president of a, of a hospital, you know, on his Friday afternoon when clearly he's had a stressful week of, of all the challenges that executives deal with in healthcare. And he's taken the time to wash my car. And it, it wasn't about washing my car. I mean, that was part of it. But what Ken was modeling was something that he did and still does on a daily basis, which is putting others first. And so he would simply, you know, he would ask questions like, you know, how is it that I can be serving you today? And you're thinking, you know, he's asking the floor keeper, he's asking the dietary tech, he's asking the physician, this way, it didn't matter who you were. And it didn't matter what it was, you knew that if, if you asked, Ken would do it. And that really has left a, a, a lasting, a positive lasting impact on me in a way that um, has been very formative in really trying to make sure I don't always get it right. Sometimes I'm selfish and I'm dictatorial and, um, and I just, I mess up, but on the whole, uh, Ken has helped me to, uh, to be more conscientious and to serve others in a way that I believe generates way better results than the, the autocratic, uh, traditional executive that we typically see personified on television. Um, or on the news, but for me, servant leadership. Wonderful. I love it. Um, and, and very impressive um, story. I'm glad, I'm glad you gave Ken a shout out on the show because, you know, we, we love to hear stories like that. Um, next question I have for you, speaking of a Ken almost type, type of question, but if you could trade jobs with anyone in the organization, with whom would it be and why? Oh man, I, it would have to be one of our surgeons. Every time I, uh, I, last week I shadowed one of our surgeons, my day completely opened up and I called one of our, our neurosurgeons. I said, can I spend the day with you? And this guy just lit up his face and, um, goes, yeah. And so I get to see him do what he does best. So he got to see, you know, uh, some stimulator placements. I got to see a craniotomy, just, it's just absolutely amazing. Uh, the human body is something truly remarkable. And, um, and then to learn more about uh, what he did. But I, I think if I could be a surgeon for a day and not do any harm, uh, that would be a lot of fun. It just, just the immediate, something's broken and you fix it. There's something that shouldn't be there and you're able to take it out. 
the restorative nature of what um, surgeons have the capability to do, and then to interact with people in such a meaningful and vulnerable way is is truly remarkable. It it just it cuts through all the facades. It doesn't matter if you're the CEO, if you're the janitor. When you're sitting in front of a physician, there is something truly remarkable that takes place. And I, I try to capture and bottle that up, and but that's a long-winded answer to your question. No, no, I love it. And um, let me ask really quickly, Paul, <clears throat> excuse me, um, just to do a time check. I know we're right at an hour, but can I take you we're for good. a few more minutes? You got it. Awesome. Thank you. Um, next question I have for you, Paul, is I would love if you could share a habit, a personal habit that contributes to your success when leading quality improvement initiatives. Sure. I just, I call it wandering. I, I'll tell my assistant, I'm going to go wander for a little bit. And it's actually wandering with a purpose, but uh I go and I'll sometimes, before the days of COVID, I'll go and sit down in the lobby, go sit in the clinic. Uh, it just will wander around um, and just see how things are going and get past the reports, get past the data and see it with my own eyes, be seen and, and see. Uh, so wandering with a purpose is the single best thing. I, I learned so much that you don't, that people either wouldn't traditionally share, that wouldn't come through a report but whether it's patients or whether it's team members, there are so many uh, great ideas and things that can be harnessed just by wandering around with a purpose. All right. I, I love it. And I love that title for it, wandering with a purpose. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, it, it makes it sound like the cooler version of going to the Gimba. So. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, that's, that's what it is. But it's just it's just wandering around and, and talking with folks. And, yeah. you know, you still got your process stuff in the back of your mind, but it's yeah. making it purposeful. Wonderful. I love it. And uh, next question I have for you. Um, what is a go-to website or mobile application for executing on the work that you lead? So we use uh, ServiceNow. That's one thing that I've been able to bridge uh, business development and process excellence. And back to your, your point about trying to link up uh, uh, operations with strategy or process improvement with strategy. That's one thing that we did. And the first thing that we did was capture all of the ideas that are out there that could be worked on. We call those demands. So all of those demands at any moment I can pull up in service now and see across our organization, what are folks thinking? Secondly, what's the prioritization of those respective demands and see what folks are working on. And then I can also see how those projects are progressing. So we really intentionally, um, aligned our strategy and business development initiatives with the same nomenclature and with the same process and data and project governance uh, tools as we use for the organization. So we, we've developed an in-house, it's like Lean, but it's Certified Process Excellence Leader or CPEL. And so that's the way in which we govern our projects or rapid improvement events. But we matched up uh, BizDev and our, um, our CPEL, our Process Excellence team. So that way, they were two sides of the same coin. So if we're going to run a project to install a new piece of software or to um, build a new program or service, it's the same nomenclature. It goes to the same data governance. It goes to the same uh, project sign-off and the entire org organization can see. There are times when you know we need to be secretive with um, entering a specific area or market. So in those scenarios, we use some pseudonyms and say, contact Paul if you have questions, but want, you know, you come up with fun names, Project Calico or uh, Project Alpha or Moonshot, and you know, it just adds an element of fun to it. But utilizing our project governance uh, in the same way with our business development. So ServiceNow is kind of the nexus, at least for us, as to how we do those. So it's all about 
cultivating and sustaining a culture of growth. All right, perfect. And just curious, is that an internal program or is that something you guys bought off the market? It's a, it's a product that you can purchase on the open market. It's obviously okay. uh, highly customize, customizable and it resides within um, Microsoft Teams, but it's its own mm-hmm. uh, standalone application that we utilize. All right. Awesome. Not familiar with that, but um, I, I love this show and having the conversations first so I can steal some of these ideas myself. So yeah. I love it. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, next question I have for you, Paul. Um, I would love if you could share with our quality people a professional society and a professional conference that you think will be a value add. Sure. Uh, professional society, at least for those in healthcare, would American College of Healthcare Executives, it's for me the most robust that I've experienced relative to professional education. And uh, I, I love Congress, uh, what's called uh, ACHE Congress. And that's an event that takes place in Chicago once a year. And just the sheer diversity of thought and ideas and energy of all these different healthcare leaders in uh, one forum is a lot of fun. And so for me, I'm able to satisfy a host of different uh, curiosities in one professional um, venue and location. And plus who doesn't love Chicago deep dish pizza? So it's, uh, it's fun. Well, I just received the email that Congress, uh, Congress will be virtual this year. So yeah. um, I haven't looked at, you know, the registration or the cost or anything yet, but it, it should be interesting. But yeah. um, I, I love uh, ACHE. That's that's one of the groups I'm plugged in with. Uh, let me ask you, Paul, is there anything from a strategy or business development point of view, any um, professional groups that you plug in from that side of, of the business? I, I try to just read and it's and try to just look at um, what's happening in the industry. But more importantly, I find it's important to have relationships with your respective customers and communities. And so many times your best ideas come from, from those relationships. And all too often we are, we're focused on the transactional and we don't like the idea of relationships, but deep and meaningful relationships are important. And um, so not a specific answer to your question, but I find that the best ideas and the successful ones are ones that are born from our customers or our guests. And those come about because you have a relationship and they kind of percolate to the top. All right. Perfect. No, great answer. Nonetheless. um, And it was a good segue also to the next question, which is, uh, is there a book that you could recommend to our audience? Uh, What is it? And why is it a great recommendation? Uh, the book that was written 50 years ago, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. I think it's the single best book that yeah. um, uh, folks should read. I give it out to all the new new grads who come meet with me, and uh, I'd encourage folks to read it once a year. I mean, it's, it, you know, leaders' currency that they trade is trust, and it, mm-hmm. that trust is and built and earned on deep and meaningful relationships, and successful leaders are able to cultivate that more quickly and to sustain it in a meaningful way with their team. So that's one book, in my opinion, that I think is, it just, it doesn't matter who you are. It's just exceedingly helpful and it's a fun read. And I think folks should read it again once a year. Yeah, that's, that's one of those I come back to pretty often. Um, Absolute classic. So love it. And last question, Paul, we, we're right there. Um, Give me the heads up though. This is, this is like the pressure is on kind of a question. Um, would love to try to get you to reflect on your past while you also look forward to your future. But mm-hmm. let's say you're able to send a text message to yourself 10 years into the past and a text message to yourself 10 years into the future. Mm-hmm. Take a second and think about it. But what would you communicate in each one of those uh, text messages? I think if I could send one 10 years ago, 
I would, I would tell myself to take a little bit more time for myself than what I did. I think that would be important. And if I could send one to my future self, I would, I would just want to affirm uh, the future me that, um, that I'd shaped and changed those around me for good and to never forget the positive impact that you, uh, you had on people. Well, I'll tell you, Paul, just, you know, reflecting really quickly on the conversation we just had um, from the way that you try to engage your organization and keep them aligned and connected with the community to the way you're engaging your leadership teams and, and the folks underneath you who are going to be the future of your organization or some organization. Um, You know, trust me, I, I promise you 10 years from now, they're going to be giving you a lot of credit to the success that you've helped them build. Um, I'm really impressed with that conversation. I really appreciate everything you shared. And um, hopefully also our audience that plugs in with your episode will have a pretty similar um, experience as they listen to this conversation. So I just want to say um, thank you again for that. Um, Paul, before I let you go, I'd love to end today with you giving our quality people just that final piece of parting advice. Share with us the best way that they can follow or connect with you through social media, and then we will officially sign off. Sure. Well, Jarvis, I just want to say thank you for having me. This has been an absolute, absolute pleasure, and, and hearing your podcast is just a heck of a lot of fun, and it's even it's even better in person. So if you're on the fence out there, uh, talk to this guy if he calls you. Um, <laughs> uh, just in terms of, uh, just don't lose sight of people and how valuable they are. And specifically in healthcare, our guests who entrust themselves, uh, to our care in healthcare, there's nothing quite like it. We get to, uh, welcome new life into this world and we get to hold and be with people as life ebbs away. But those encounters in between are ultimately what define for me anyways, uh, what is meaningful and impactful. And it's just a distinct privilege and honor. So if you want to hear more, if you want to connect, uh, I'm on LinkedIn and uh, you can uh, look me up on LinkedIn. I think Jarvis will have the link uh, for my LinkedIn profile there, but pretty active and shoot me a message and I'd love to connect with you and uh, hear your story and how you're transformed. Perfect. And I can promise you now, everyone, that he does connect. He does respond. So (laughs) as proof of this conversation here, um, Paul, thank you so much again for everything shared today Uh, to our quality people everywhere. Thank you all for listening and making us a part of your day. This is Jarvis and Paul, and we are signing off. Quality people, thank you so much again for plugging in with today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please feel free to share it using the social media link posted in the notes below. I'd also be very grateful if you could subscribe, give us a rating, and also share feedback on what additional value we can bring to you through this podcast. That helps a lot with our show rankings and also with getting this great content out to healthcare leaders around the world. And if you want to engage with me directly, then please connect with me on LinkedIn, where I share additional resources, access to our QI community, and much more. All right, quality people, thank you again, and I'll see you back here next week when I introduce you to another quality guest.